0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is BELIEVE.
1: Hello, I am John Najarian, and you're about to hear compound interests. Compound interests, I get to talk one-on-one with people in our industry, which is of course finance, but also uh, luminaries uh, in the music industry, Uh, stage and screen. Uh, I'm a blessed guy that I get to basically expand um, my uh, contact list on a daily basis. And one of those people today is Cole Feinberg. Cole is a uh, a managing director over at Goldman Sachs. He works on their asset management and in particular, exchange traded funds or ETFs. So I think you're really going to like the discussion as we discuss the changes that are happening to the Dow Jones Industrials, which is again, a price weighted index. We'll discuss that as well as then taking a 90 degree turn and going from what you see on my screen here, the Bay Area, San Francisco, which is where Cole is based, on up to Napa and Sonoma, because he also has a business called Fine Wines. uh, That's F-E-I-N, Wines, And we got to talk a little bit about Chardonnays, Zinfandels, and Cabernets uh, from some of the things as well as perhaps visiting those vineyards that let you do those tastings. And believe me, with these fires, folks, uh, these guys need all the help that they can get. And I'm glad that Cole is out there providing some of that help Uh, as soon as these fires are put out. I'm sure people will be going back up into Napa and Sonoma to uh, spend some cash, and if you have to do it online, you can do it online too. Anyway, enjoy the conversation with Cole Feinberg and me, John Najarian from Market Rebellion.
0: Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for the the Homeland support back there with the bridge screen, it's it's a beautiful sight. Unfortunately, there's a little uh, smoke in the air and it's probably not quite as clear these days, but we're making some headway, the good, the good men and women of our firefighting organizations have done an unreal job of, of fighting these fires, and we're getting to a better place.
1: Yep, I agree. Um, it is pretty amazing, Cole, the, uh, um, the heroism that goes on because, you know, these fires, folks, um, if you've ever been to a valley like Napa or Sonoma, or if you've actually been to those two where, you know, that's the primary wine country in Northern California. Um, They are like this, you know, talk about V-shaped bottoms coal. It's like, you know, I guess you spread it a little wider. It's like this, the flat area in the middle is where most of the vineyards are. There's some going up the hills, but the rest of it is just very steep uh, and uh, very arid. Um, And so the greenery is in that valley, folks, and arid, up there on those hills. And when I lived out there, I remember how fast those fires climb up those hills, Cole. So not only for the people living there and the danger that they're in, but those firefighters, when they're trying to make a break line. And think of that, Cole, you guys were of course experiencing triple digit heat, you know, 100 degree heat um, during the day out in the valley and in, you know, parts like Livermore and things like that as well. Anything on the other side of the Bay Bridge or north of uh, 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 Marin and so forth, it was getting really hot. And those men and women who are fighting on the ground are digging trenches in 100 degree heat with the fire that's creating another probably 160 degrees not too far away from them. So you're right. uh, My hat's off to the uh, The heroes that are working out there in those kind of conditions
0: yeah it's really something else we a lot to be thankful for with how hard they work and um, we're fortunate that we get to enjoy the clear air that that we're getting now as a result of how much effort they put forth and it's it's really sensational it's uh you know it's it's crazy and then you look at other parts of the u s you've got you know the storms in the Southeast and on the East Coast these days. It's just not a very fun time of year um, all, over the, all over the U.S. these days. So better times ahead, John, better times ahead.
1: Yep, here's to that. Um, and folks, um, I really got to know Cole when I would go to these Wallach Beth um, conferences out in, uh, uh, usually uh, right in Park City. And uh, Cole was one of the featured speakers there. Um, He would, of course, talk about asset management and so forth. And Wallach Beth is a firm that does a lot of executions for some of the biggest traders. They're a broker's broker. They don't commit capital on their side. Um, But that's why they think insights like Kohl's can be very um, eye-opening and uh, certainly educational for the folks that uh, didn't know and for the folks that do. They appreciate all the different products that uh, Cole's company, Goldman Sachs, brings out. Uh, because what does, I, I forget, Cole, I, I, I have forgotten already how low the fee is on your S&P 500 spider-like product. But I think it might be like 10 basis points or some crazy number like that.
0: Close, even lower. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's nine basis points for our kind of bellwether U.S. large cap offering the ticker on that is GSLC. Um, you know, interesting. We we don't just kind of replicate the index and and kind of you know um, use all five hundred names kind of you know exactly as the index provides them. Um, while while we absolutely believe in kind of call it market cap weighting, our view is you know maybe the size of the company shouldn't be the only input. And so we look at some kind of traditional, you know, tried and true factors a la uh, low volatility, quality, value, momentum, and some other inputs to do what I like to think of as kind of enhancing the index um, to give you, you know, one of two things, a little bit less vol uh, or maybe some alpha. And, And we've been very fortunate that the offering has worked very well at achieving both of those since inception. So we can take a little bit of volatility off the table. We offer an opportunity for, you know, kind of call it modest but consistent alpha with with giving you those attributes of those factors. You get kind of all of the benefits of traditional passive ETFs, low cost, tradability, transparency, tax efficiency, but you get some of the benefits of traditional active management as well with these factors and so forth. And so all of the above, you get that, you you pay the same freight as you might for, you know, kind of an index replication type of vehicle at that nine bips, but you get an opportunity for a little bit more bang for your buck, if you will.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking at a graph of it right now, folks. And uh, the GSLC um, is about eight and a third percent um, on the year versus 7.4% for the S&P 500. And virtually, um, you know, there's hardly a day that goes by that this one isn't, you know, several uh, basis points, you know, if not 100 basis points ahead of the S&P 500. And depending which flavor you uh, elect to trade in that uh, S&P 500, you could be charged north of 25 BIPs instead of as little as nine. So it's a up from a total return basis. This uh, active beta ETF uh, certainly has been doing a great job, Cole. So uh, I'm sure this is an easy one for you to sell.
0: <laughs> yeah. I Let's not tell my manager that it's easy to sell, okay?
1: Because <laughs> you still like to get those checks, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: exactly. Um,
1: now, as you mentioned already, Cole, we're going through a time when we've got um, an... Uh, Uh, perhaps historic even, um, shift in the Dow Jones industrials, because the Dow was very worried. Um, It it is a price-weighted index, folks, and I'll ask Cole to uh, opine on that, but a price-weighted versus capitalization-weighted over at the S&P 500, which we were just talking about. So in a capitalization-weighting, it doesn't change, you know, five singles is the same as a $5 bill, folks. So nothing changed about Apple in the S&P 500 weightings. It is still the biggest in the S&P 500. However, when you look at something like a price weighted index like Dow Jones, when you change Apple from say $500 to $125, as they go through that four for one stock split, it has less of an impact on that index. And one of the reasons, of course, that ExxonMobil is replaced by Salesforce.com, and I'm sure, Cole, they wish, the Dow Jones people wish that uh, this would have been a week ago because then they could have enjoyed that 14% spike out of uh, their new pick, the new entrant, but it doesn't go in until Monday next week um, into the Dow Jones industrials. Um, but, Nonetheless, if you wouldn't mind, Cole, could you tell us a little bit about price-weighted indexes and if there are any others that you pay any attention to other than just Dow? And obviously, nobody really tracks the Dow except the public and the Wall Street Journal when they publish, you know, the prices. Um, But not too many people in your business are baiting or are uh, comparing themselves to the uh, Dow Jones industrials, are they?
0: Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. I think it's interesting. There are not a lot of, you know, the proliferation of exchange-traded funds, um, there are a lot of different indexes. You know, we talked about the S&P 5. There, there are a number, uh, and it's a big number, of ETFs against the S&P 5, against the Russell 1000. Name the index. Uh, there's probably a handful of ETFs, if not more, uh, you know, that benchmark to that. The exception is kind of the Dow. Uh, not to say there aren't ETFs out there that, you know, that do track. Um, that said, you know, I think to your point, the, the price weighted um, exposure that the Dow Jones Industrial Average gives you, which by the way, the Dow is, the, that index is managed and owned by S&P as well, right? So it's um, all part of the same kind of all under the same umbrella. Um, I just don't know that investors for the most part gravitate to that you know, that kind of methodology in terms of the price weighting. And so, um, you know, I I was on the heels of these exchanges, right? Exxon is out, Pfizer is out, Raytheon is out, and in their place, like you said, Salesforce.com, Amgen, Honeywell, you know, so being removed is an an oil and gas company, a defense contractor, um, and a traditional call it pharmaceutical company. And being replaced by, you know, a biotech firm, a software company, and a more, and kind of a tech titan, if you will. I, to me, that really just reflects broader trends in the U.S. economy, right, and broader trends in, in society. Um, I was looking at kind of some of the more historical changes to the Dow Jones as well. Walgreens, uh, at the time, Walgreens Boots replaced GE in 2018. Um, at the time that that occurred, I didn't realize this at the time, but I just learned this as I was looking at Salesforce and Amgen and Honeywell's kind of induction, if you will. At the time that GE left the DAO in 2018, none of the original DAO components remained anymore. GE was kind of the last man standing, if you will, from the original DAO 30. So just something I thought was kind of interesting. But these changes have happened a lot in the past, right? at and GM, Sears. Um, AIG was a big one in 2008 on the heels of the f- financial crisis. So, you know, these changes are, are I think, important. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing I'd say, too, is the S&P changes, you know, I think more importantly, thinking about the S&P relative to the Dow and other kind of, you know, less concentrated, the S&P is 500 plus names where the Dow is 30, right? So the S&P has pretty good turnover. It changes much more frequently, be it IPOs, you know, mergers, acquisitions, other corporate actions, mid caps being kind of promoted, and so forth. So I think the the lens that I look at it from an ETF standpoint is, you know, ETFs look to kind of mirror indexes, right? And so whatever these indexes are doing, be it the Dow, be it the S&P, be it, you know, emerging markets, MSCI, all kinds of different indexes out there. I think ETFs Um, one of the key benefits that I already mentioned, actually, one of the key benefits, I think, of ETFs is transparency. Um, All ETFs are required to report every single holding of every single ETF on a daily basis. So these index changes, you talked about the coming Salesforce, Amgen, Honeywell coming, uh, is it this Monday, the the 31st? Um, Yes, it is. those, Those index changes are going to be reflected literally same day in ETFs. So you're going to get that immediate update to that transparency. Um, and I think, and I think that's really important for investors. And I think it's a huge reason that investors have flocked to ETFs and that we've seen such a great kind of growth in assets in, in the ETF industry. And, and that trend has certainly continued um, is, is things like that transparency and the, the confidence that you you know, exactly what you own and that you own the right amount of it. Um, and so, You know, whether it's Dow, whether it's S&P, regardless of the methodology, I think a huge benefit to indexing is the, um, you know, kind of the key tenets of ETFs and how ETFs gives you, gives you exposure to those, to those indexes, regardless of how, you know, market cap weighted, price weighted, whatever they are, uh, ETFs give you that kind of simple um, and, and easy to implement exposure to those indexes.
1: Well, well said, Cole. Um, Let me ask you this. Um, First, I'll make a little bit of a statement. Um, I get asked all the time about how is the market uh, disconnected from the economy? And my response usually, Cole, is that, well, again, uh, if we're talking about a cap-weighted index like the S&P 500, and you've got the top weightings basically these five or six or even 10 stocks, uh, the top 10 holdings of the S&P 500 by capitalization, they're mostly stocks that don't require in-person face-to-face connection. um, So that all of the hospitality, if you will, of airlines, hotels, um, cruise lines, restaurants are things that are not on the high end of capitalization, they are in fact on the lowest end of capitalization in the indices. And so if you're asking me, why are they disconnected, that's my answer. Um, you know, Netflix, um, Amazon, Apple, uh, Alphabet or Google, um, and these stocks do not require people to be face to face with the customer. Um, But those others that I mentioned in the hospitality space, that's the number one thing for those companies. So when you're looking at it, um, that's my idea as far as why there's not that connection. You know, how can the market be back to record highs with a million people a week for 22 of the last 24 weeks filing for um, jobless claims? That's the reason, because it's not measuring those people. My question to you, Cole, um, would be, number one, do you agree? Number two, um, have you ever had anybody ask you for an index that does track um, all of that pain? Because for the most part, people that invest in indices are looking not for the underperformance, they're looking for the alpha, the outperformance. And clearly, um, the S&P and other indices have delivered that this year. Um, And I don't know if there's any demand at all for an index that would just be those, as Tom Lee calls them, the epicenter stocks.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think you know, look to your point, right? Client demand is behind everything we do, um, and and so <laughs> I, I kind of joke we're a pretty commercial organization as our most for profits, um, and and we certainly want to bring um, offerings that are beneficial to our clients, right? If a client um, or or you know. Uh, organization of any kind is seeking a solution and we have the capability to provide said solution, we want to be partners with that firm, right? And so to your point specifically on, you know, getting maybe niche with specific ETF offerings, I think if we we believe that we have the expertise in-house to create something be it as a one-off or, or, you know, be it kind of in partnership with a firm that's looking for a very specific solution, we'll absolutely do that. And I think, you know, I joked a second ago about the proliferation of ETFs. Um, there's over 2,000 listed ETFs in the United States. And I think double that globally when you include Europe and Asia and, and you know, Latin America and so forth. And so when you, when you put, and Australia as well, when you put all that together, look, I think there are a number of ETFs out there that give you interesting exposures, just like what you talked about, right? Not all um, investors are looking for. You know, we've kind of talked about big river asset classes so far, right? S and P five hundred, you know, an EFA type international developed emerging markets MSCI type stuff. Um, a lot of investors do look for blunt instruments like those um, for a lot of different reasons. We can talk about why certain institutions use ETFs and how retail investors. Use ETFs as well, and there's there's differing reasons for why they may or may not be solutions in different portfolios. Um, but there are absolutely, you know, again, that proliferation of the number of offerings out there. A lot of them are very specific, kind of call it nuanced um, type stuff, where you know maybe you can get so such a fine point as to say it's specifically. You know, I don't think there's enough cruise lines to say here's just a cruise line ETF but you can have kind of a, you know, a travel specific, a gaming specific. Um, and we certainly see some of the, whether it's e-gaming or, or kind of, you know, to your point about kind of person to person, you know, obviously the the casino companies and so forth. Right. I mean, there's a lot of ETFs out there that can give you that precision type of exposure. Um, and, and, you know, whether we have those offerings or others do, I think all ETF issuers and the industry as a whole, I would say, has done a really good job of, um, you know, listening to client demand and and bringing products to market where cl- clients have suggested that there would be assets to to you know support bringing products like that to market. Um, and so, you know, I think we're always ears open and eyes wide open with clients and and with prospects who have suggested or have ideas, um, you know, we actually have on our website kind of a suggestion box, if you will, of, of ideas. And, and we learn a lot from our clients in, in so doing. And again, I'll, I'll button that point up by saying, I think there's an opportunity for, you know, not necessarily just more, more, more listings, but if clients are, are, if there's a desire from a client standpoint, like I say, that's the, that's the catalyst for any and all new products that we bring to market. And I would suspect for for others as well. And, you know, it's all about clients and, and meeting their demands and, and providing solutions for them.
1: Okay, let me ask you about um, liquidity. Um, I think liquidity has been fine for most of uh, the uh, uh, COVID months, um, even though we haven't had as many folks, of course, on trading desks. Um, I think it's been Pretty good as far as liquidity, and not surprisingly, Cole, uh, we would both probably say, "Yeah, John, that's because human beings aren't doing very much of that." Um, an awful lot of it is um, HFTs, algorithms, and so forth, um, which I'm not demonizing those. Uh, I think uh, for those of us with a longer time frame than two or three milliseconds, I think uh, you know if if DRW or uh, Virtu or Citadel or Jump Trading or any of these guys want to make that market and jump back and forth into uh, trades. I don't know that that impacts me in a negative way. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that from an ETF specific angle, of course. And I'll, I'll first of all I'll agree with you. I don't think we've seen any liquidity shock, you know, any kind of concern around liquidity whatsoever. Um, which is great, right? I mean, I think that's an arrow in the quiver of the way the exchanges operate, an arrow in the quiver of the way market makers and liquidity providers operate and really the entire ecosystem. Um, To to take the question specifically to kind of high-frequency trading, um, you know, I think this might surprise people. Um, My take very simply, high-frequency trading, HFT, is actually a very good thing for ETFs and let me tell you why and most importantly for etf investors and, and 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 i'll kind of expand on why i think that is an etf at the end of the day is a derivative of you know again of an index so let's just keep it really simple s&p 500 as the example if you have an s&p 500 etf trading at x and the basket of securities that make up that ETF, again, in this case, a program trade that would represent all 500 names. In fact, I think there's actually 506 names in the S&P 500 right now. Um, if there is any displacement whatsoever in the fair value, and just hypothetical example, the basket of stocks is trading at 99 spot 99 and the ETF is trading at 100. Well, I can buy the basket of stocks and sell the ETF and collapse that arbitrage opportunity, if you will, of a penny. Now, if that's just me, and it's my personal account, and I'm doing that $100 times a penny, or excuse me, 100 shares times a penny, it's probably not really worth it. Um, But from a high frequency trading standpoint, what that does is it keeps the fair value of the ETF in line with the fair value of the index it's tracking. Right. And so I think, one of the benefits of high-frequency trading for our investors as a result is that you know the bid-ask spread of that ETF is around its fair value, right? And so you're never going to see, by definition, arbitrage is immediately wiped away. Um, And so you're never going to see significant displacements of the fair value of the ETF relative to the fair value of the securities within that ETF for that exact reason. As soon as there is an opportunity um, or as soon as there is any kind of displacement between those two fair values, a high frequency trading shop is going to collapse it and take that very, very, very modest profit for themselves. Again, good for them. That's capitalism working. They're making that very modest profit for themselves. But most importantly for us in the ETF ecosystem, again, it's, it's a opportunity to increase confidence for the investors in ETFs that they're getting the right price, that they're getting a fair price. And so to your point, I know you you, you even said the term, I, I totally agree with you, not demonizing them. I think often there is a misrepresentation of some of the good that, that, you know, the call it electronic, you know, aspects of, of what the market has become. Um, there are definitely significant pros to that. Um, and, and for ETFs, I think it's a very, um, easily put the finger on the pulse that it's, it's better for end clients because they know they're getting the right price when they're buying and selling ETFs.
1: Um, as far as Cole, the, uh, uh, the lack of uh, face-to-face uh, because you're a guy just like me um, who is probably on the road, um, if not 50 weeks a year, pretty close to it. Um, even though you're right there in San Francisco and there's an awful lot of wealth and an awful lot of uh, family offices and every other sort of office that you might hit, there's an awful lot of that there and up and down the California coast. But, you know, with your role at GSEC or Goldman Sachs, I'm sure that you have to travel a lot. Are you thinking that this has negatively impacted your the amount of business that you've done this year? Or, um, have you been able to make many more touches, if you will, to those consumers, to those um, customers, uh, because you're not on the road as much, you're not wasting as much time back and forth to airports in Ubers and up in the air when you're trying to you know, use a, a go-go internet connection yeah. to uh, be able to speak to the people you're speaking to or you know communicate or whatever, How, what would you say as far as the amount of business you've done this year versus last year, um, is it better or worse, the amount that you've been able to do and close and uh, stay in touch with people?
0: That's a great question. I think, look, the business aspect specifically, I would say it's kind of flat to modestly positive year over year, right? We, We, without a shadow of a doubt, we have not seen a downtick in terms of client engagement right? I think a lot of people look to us, um, not only for our views on the markets, and, you know, what can we expect? And, you know, it's not always easy to put our finger on the pulse of that, especially when you have, you know, emergency Fed rate cuts, and, you know, we don't pretend to always have the exact right answer. Things change in a heartbeat these days. Um, But I think clients have have wanted to continue to stay in touch. Uh, You know, we're doing this on Zoom as a perfect example, right? I mean, I think the the number of calls has probably gone down, the number of meetings has also gone down, live meetings, obviously, the number of Zooms and FaceTimes and, you know, Google community and all the different kind of apps and and networking functionalities that we use to stay face-to-face as we are now, um, that has increased massively. And so, you know, what's kind of been cool about that is, um, you know, a little more family time has been a positive result, right? Instead of being on airplanes and hotels and Ubers and all that good stuff, like you mentioned, a little more time at home has been a benefit of that. Um, But I do miss seeing clients face to face. I miss, you know, you're in, you're in one of my favorite cities, obviously in Chicago, I miss deep dish pizza uh, and, you know, grabbing a beer with you. And I miss, you know, having a coffee and having a conversation with folks live for sure. But from a business aspect specifically, um, we've had great, you know, the industry has seen great flows. We, as a firm at, you know, at GSAM and our ETF business, we've had, um, a significant, you know, I, I would say an increase in flows. We've had a really good year from that regard. And I think again, from a product standpoint, it's because our products are doing what they're supposed to do. And, and clients have, you know, I kind of joke all the time, investors vote with their dollars. Right. And, and so, um, if, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, they're gonna they're gonna vote and give you those dollars. And and you know, it's not us patting ourselves on the back by any stretch. It's it's simply that our offerings have done well. And as a result, we've been able to remain extremely and and incredibly well engaged with our client base and, and even a lot of new prospects as well, right? Where folks are you know taking notice and and wanting to um, form partnerships and create relationships and so forth. And so the business aspect alone. Um, it's it's been a good year. It's been you know I think um, engagement has been up, um, which maybe rewind to kind of March and April, I think I would have been surprised that I would be saying this at the end of August. You know, four or five six months ago, given where we were, um, but it's been it's been a, a very positive year, business specifically.
1: Well, let me ask you about um, another area that I know you're passionate about, and so am I and that is your wine business. <laughs> because as we said at the top of the show, folks, um, Cole is in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and uh, there, are, there are few better Appalachians on earth than ones that are just uh, 35 minutes to an hour and a half away from where he stands right now. Um, and so he has created fine wines So if you go to Instagram or Twitter, F-E-I-N, and then wines, plural, W-I-N-E-S, you will see what he posts up regularly. um, And tell us a little bit about starting that business, Cole, and about how now it is a business. It's not just you reviewing wines and saying what you liked about Hall or about any of the wines that you might have highlighted recently. It's about, um, oh, would you like to buy some? <laughs> I can help you. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate you bringing it up, John. So, as you said, it's, a, it's kind of a play on our last name, obviously, the F-E-I-N wines. Um, so, look, the, the short version is, as you said, we live here. Um, I spend, my wife and I and our family spend probably way too much time, energy, and certainly money in wine country, um, but we love it. We're passionate about it. We love wine. And it's just such a big part of the economy and, and society around here, period. Um, but look, I think the short version is is this. Um, there are a tremendous number of wineries that everybody is very familiar with. You go to your grocery store or, your, or you know, your the, the wine shop down the street, wherever you buy what you buy, and you know, you're used to maybe something that you love and you get that really frequently, right? You buy that over and over because you love it and you know it and you like it. There are so many mom and pop or family wineries that I think have very little distribution, candidly, uh, very little marketing, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons. They can't afford it often and they're just focused on the juice, which is awesome because the result means they're making really good wine. Um, But they just don't have a a way to get it into people's hands. And so our kind of the brainchild here and and the catalyst for starting this is, you know, people come and visit us and come out to the Bay area and and take trips up to wine country and so forth. And my wife and I would, our phone would ring and Hey, what's a good suggestion for a hotel up there or a great restaurant or certainly wineries and wine tastings. Uh, And we thought, Hey, let's, you know, can we, can we think about, is that a business? Um, And, and the short version is, is, you know, if you're kind of suggesting to people stuff that they're unfamiliar with um, and they like it, there's something there. Um, and, and I think just being in the backyard here, um, we're familiar with a lot of these kind of, you know, up-and-coming smaller wineries. And the short version is we've, we've decided to create this little side hustle, as the kids call it, with fine wines. Um, and and what we do is we basically try to raise awareness around some of these smaller wineries that don't have the, you know, don't have the prestige and so forth of others. Maybe they're less expensive. Maybe they're better. Maybe they're both. And and kind of everybody wins, right? The the winery wins because they're extending their distribution um, to folks that otherwise wouldn't have, have been aware probably. Um, consumer wins because the consumer is getting access to stuff that they had no idea even existed. Um, and maybe it's better or, or unique and different in some way to, to what they were kind of used to. And then to your point, it is a business. And, and what we're doing is basically, you know, kind of as a, a finder's fee or, a, or an introducing broker, as we would say in our industry, um, kind of offering folks access to this stuff. And so, you know, like you said, via Instagram, via Twitter and, and some other, um, mediums, we're just trying to raise some awareness for folks around some of this stuff that, you know, some wines that that people would probably really, really enjoy. And oftentimes they're far less expensive than the top shelf that you're used to maybe, you know, looking at. And so if we can if we can help folks get their hands on good wine at a lower cost, um, we think that that's something that is, is beneficial, like I said, to all parties involved. And um, it allows me to taste more wine as well and make sure I agree with the agree with the sentiment and so anyways we're we're creating this business we've got a number of different things in the works in terms of the alcoholic beverage commission and making sure we have all the licenses correct it's a pretty heavy lift as you would suspect um and and we're really excited about it it's really fun it's it's a lot of fun
1: well so now uh now here's where the rubber hits the road then cole um give me your two best picks for cabernets California Cabernets, and then your two best picks for Chardonnays, um, and uh, then you know we'll we'll pull our audience later to see if they agree, um, and or I'll offer my opinion on them right away if I've had them. Uh, so what would you say right now would be you know again adhering to what you just set forward. Yeah. we're not saying oh. Yeah, uh, Screaming Eagle, John. Absolutely. Screaming Eagle, $5,600 a bottle. Let's go for it. Um, What would you say is a great value for a Cabernet or two? And then the same thing with a couple of Chardonnays.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is my favorite part of this too, is, you know, people think of Napa and Sonoma, right? And, and there's, Awesome wines being made down in the Santa Barbara area, Santa Ynez, and all the way up through the Central Coast, Paso Robles, and, and um, you know, San Luis Obispo areas of the Central Coast of California, and up north even further as well in both Lake and Mendocino counties. Um, and I'm, so I'm going to give you a couple suggestions. Okay. Is, I'm going to start with the Chardonnay. This is, uh, it's unbelievable. There's a tiny little winery, but they do, they have awesome production. Um, it's called Maple Creek. It's up in Mendocino County in a tiny little town called Yorkville, California. Um, I've become pretty good friends with, with the gentleman who runs it. He's a huge baseball fan. He's got two dogs named Buster and Posey. Um, And uh, we've, we've befriended them. They make unbelievable Chardonnay. um, And they have, nobody knows about this place. You would drive by the winery and not even know about it. Their sign is so small. And so um, that's one that I'm going to recommend. The gentleman who it, Tom Rodriguez is the guy who started it. He's an incredible artist. He actually did all the artistry for Farniente uh, wines and for Nickel and Nickel, which is if you Google there, both. Yeah, they're amazing, and the artwork is phenomenal. So this guy is such a such a um, you know he's he's like a Renaissance man. He's such an incredible artist, and now he's this phenomenal winemaker. He finally made enough money with the art. That he was working with those other those other shops, um, that he was able to start his own thing, and he took it up to Mendocino and created this wine. So within Maple Creek, it's Arte Vino, A R T E V I N O, art and wine in Italian. Um, kind of apropos. Anyway, their Chardonnay is off the charts. It's very inexpensive compared to the other ones I mentioned, maybe. Um, and and but they're you know a good partnership there. That's an awesome Chardonnay. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears. I mentioned Central Coast. They have an awesome cab too, for what it's worth. Um, and uh, that's in- Art Davino. Yeah, A R T E V I N O. The winery is called Maple Creek up in Mendocino County. Gotcha. Uh, they make an incredible Cabernet. They have a good Zin, good Pinos. They're really pretty darn good at everything. I think their Chardonnay is exquisite, though. Um, and then. Um, I mentioned going down the coast a little bit. It's, it's not a small producer. People are probably familiar with Justin, but outside of, mm-hmm. of Napa and Sonoma, um, down in the Central, Cap, the Central Coast area is, um, is Justin Vineyards. Um, they actually have a really cool kind of stay and sip thing going on where you can stay on the property down in the vineyard down there too, which is really neat. They make an incredible cab. They have some really high-end stuff. Um, everything is kind of a play on geometry that they do. So they have one called isosceles, um, an equilateral, a number of different kind of, uh, wines, their entry level cab, I think is, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, obviously it depends on the retailer. I think it's anywhere between 20 and 25 bucks. Um, it's fantastic. It's really, really good, especially for that price point. I think it holds up really well against some of the big boys and the, and the bigger price tags. So, um, I think it's, you know. There's all kinds of good stuff. Uh, we have some friends in Sonoma County, Weese Family Winery, W E E S E. They make some killer, some killer stuff. You know, it's all about what you like. And one thing that we try to do at Fine Wines is, you know, post um, all kinds of different varietals. Right? It's not all Pinot. It's not all Cab. It's not all you know Sauvignon Blanc. We try to mix it up. And and you know, if you if if our followers and our you know customers and so forth like a specific varietal only, great. You can kind of sort through just that varietal. And um, we're very close to refreshing our website. And so it's currently offline and under construction, but it'll be up and running very soon, finewines.com. Um, and it, it's kind of a, it's like I say, it's kind of a fun side hustle thing. It's not yet wildly uh, profitable, um, but it allows us to get excited about the wine that we're drinking and, and you know share ideas and so forth. And um, we're, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun thing. And the good news is, is I also love my, my job in ETF land. And so kind of pinch myself that I get to do a couple of different things that I love every day. Like talking to you, John.
1: Exactly, like talking to me, like uh, heckling me like you love to do. <laughs> and I love it back.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, Cole, I really appreciate your time, my friend. Um, I love what you're doing uh, with the wines. Um, I know you're doing great work with uh, the ETFs and the asset management side of the business. And um, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk to each other again soon. So thank you very much for your insights today.
0: Thank you, John. It's great talking to you. I really appreciate you having me. and, And I look forward to seeing you soon, I hope, live, real live.
1: Yeah, real life. Well, hopefully very soon. Folks, that's Cole Feinberg. I really appreciate your insights again, Cole, and we'll talk soon.
0: Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.